Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 36, God Makes No Mistakes. Now, I'm going to try and keep this intro pretty short, uh, as my interview with Jamin Hubner is nearly an hour and a half long, and mind you, I'm not complaining. <laughs> Inerrancy is an important topic to discuss, but I realize that it's stretching the boundaries of how long you're probably interested in listening to a single episode of my show, so let me just say a few brief things. First, I mentioned last episode that I was on the verge of surpassing 100 people besides me who like the The Apologetics page on Facebook. And I encouraged you to add yourself to that list if you haven't already. Well, I just want to thank the few of you who answered my request, because as of this morning, there are exactly 100 people besides myself who like the page. I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. Okay, so maybe you don't like me, but it means a lot that you like the show, even if only a little bit, and that you would choose my podcast out of the myriads of good ones out there to listen to. That means a lot to me. In fact, I checked this morning, and Podbean tells me that, you know, counting all the episodes together, my show's been downloaded some 9,655 times, uh, and that's, what, eight months since I've started? That's pretty exciting to me and, and encouraging for a no-name like myself. <laughs> so I just want to thank you, all of you that are listening, for, for listening and for liking the Facebook page and for letting me try to infect you with my passion for theology and apologetics. Second, I reached out to Dr. James White, whom I interviewed a couple of episodes ago, uh, as well as to Jamin Hubner, from whom you're going to be hearing from in a moment, asking them for advice on seminaries to attend. Uh, Dr. White doesn't seem to think too highly of the accredited schools out there and recommended the Midwest Center for Theological Studies, uh, which Jamin seconded. Uh, I looked MCTS up, and I'm really liking what I'm seeing on multiple levels, but I'm not yet convinced that I want to go the route of an unaccredited school. Uh, Dr. White called accreditation a game of politics, and I hear that, but I wonder if there are doors that won't open uh, without an accredited degree, including maybe going for a doctorate in the future. So... I'm not yet 100% sold on MCTS and, and still open to any schools that you, my listeners, might recommend. Um, a couple of you who have done that, and I really appreciate that, but if, if you're out there and, and have any recommendations for, for a seminary to attend, go ahead and contact me at theapologetics at hotmail.com. Remember, I'm looking for something affordable and which offers a, uh, degrees via distance learning because I'm, I'm employed full-time and I've got a growing family and I, you know I can't afford a lot. Uh, also, it would be helpful if I could get both my bachelor's and my master's there, since all I have under my belt is a high school diploma. So, you know, with those things in mind, I'd really appreciate your recommendations. Finally, as I mentioned in a recent episode, next week's episode is going to be a debate between Michael Burgos, who appeared in episode 11, I think it was, to talk about Oneness Pentecostals. A debate between him and a Oneness Pentecostal, who has taken issue with what Michael has said. Michael will be affirming the statement, The Son eternally pre-existed with the Father, and his opponent will be arguing against it. Please be praying that the Lord would bring glory to himself and expose false doctrine through this debate, and that we who get to listen in would be edified and made better able to defend the biblical truth of Christ's nature. But also remember that I'd like to challenge each of them with two or three difficult questions in case they don't come up in cross-examination between them. 
Uh, I've got a couple of ideas, particularly for the one that's Pentecostal. But if you can think of some questions which might be difficult for someone who affirms the son's preexistence to answer, like Mike, or some or some questions which might be difficult to answer for someone who affirms Jesus' preexistence as God, but denies that God is three persons in one God, uh, please send those to me. I really don't want to toss them softballs, <laughs> you know. Uh, I want to give them. Uh, tough questions, hoping to reveal which worldview holds up to careful scrutiny. So send those in if you would, and, and be looking forward to the debate as I am. I think it'll be good. All right, well, that's enough of an intro, and I'll go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation for my friend Glenn Peoples' Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. It's kind of ironic, I suppose, that Glenn's show would be next in my promo rotation, since he doesn't necessarily hold quite the view of scripture that Jamin and I do. And if he listens to this episode, I look forward to his critique. I, I just hope he goes easy on me. <laughs> but, uh, but I very much enjoy Glenn's blog and podcast and recommend them to you. They're challenging and thought-provoking, and, and they may get you to reconsider views you've taken for granted for a long time. You might recall, for example, his appearances on my show back in episodes 12, 15, and 16 to discuss his view of the human soul called physicalism. Glenn's arguments against the sort of traditional dualism which has dominated Christianity are the most compelling I've heard and have caused me to move to the fence where I'm still precariously precariously perched. <laughs> um, but that's all right. I, I'd, I'd rather think carefully about my convictions than blindly hold to what I've been taught. And I think that that's one of several services that Glenn provides through his blog and podcast. So check them out at www.berettaonline. That's berettaonline.com. Uh, and with that, let's move into today's interview. We're not to question what he does, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm joined today by my guest, Jamin Hubner, founder of realapologetics.org, to discuss the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jamin. Thanks, Chris. Now, I've got, to, I've got to start by asking the question that I'm sure is most pressing on the minds of anybody who's friends with you on Facebook. Have you suffered any radiation poisoning as a result of your laundry incident yesterday? Yes. You have? Yes. I, <laughs> more than those poor, uh, poor souls working in the reactors in Japan. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, not really. Uh, but, it, yeah, it was uh, just for an advice uh, for any silly people out there. Don't put your detergent... Uh, on the very top of your stacked laundry devices, uh, it will fall and uh, kick you in the pants. So, that's, or at least tighten yeah. the cap. <laughs> well, <laughs> the cap is what broke. I mean, that's the silly oh. thing. It fell over and it fell right on the cap. I see. And you know what's funny is that uh, you know you clean it up once, but see, it got all underneath the wash machine, mm. and so and I could I can't move this thing. It's like it's in there, and uh, so you're cleaning it up and. Uh, you come back an hour later and it's all there again. Well, it's cause, you know, it's so thick and gravity makes it smush down, you yeah. know, and so it keeps spreading and anyway, yeah, thanks, uh, for your, for your question. <laughs> You're very welcome. Well, let's get started. I like to begin most interviews by asking my guests for their testimonies, but 
but I suspect that your your answer to that question would be a little bit different than the kinds of responses I usually get. And the reason the reason is because many of us were born again later in life. But I can't imagine that that's true of you, given that it what appears to be a very young age. You're already a professor of theology. You've already written several books, presented at conferences, participated in debates. So if you're not if you're not embarrassed by my asking, would you mind telling us how, just how old you are and and maybe share with us your story? How, how is it that at your young age you're already as accomplished as you are? Well, there's a lot of different questions in there. Um, I like to make it tough. Well, <laughs> and that's good. I, I like that. Um, well, I'm 24, and um, uh, let's see. You asked, um, born again later in life. Well, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I guess a public profession of faith took place at age seven. Although, I don't know. Sometimes I look back and I think about it, and I, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really think I understood what sin was at all. Uh, I think there was more peer pressure involved in that uh, decision uh, and so forth. But um, it was later in early teens where I, you know, I really experienced the conviction of sin and uh, the need for God's grace and uh, you know just just praying to God and so forth and and so uh, you know that that took place. But I, I don't know. I really got active in, in Christianity in terms of. Uh, uh, just thinking and reading and so forth uh, in the junior year of high school and senior year. And, um, I, you know, God does what he's going to do with his people, and uh, he's given me a lot of unique opportunities uh, that I've, I've just thanked him for, and and uh, by his grace, I, I hope they're, they're useful for him and his kingdom. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you answering that. I just wanted to make sure that my listeners were as embarrassed as I am to be as old as I am and yet be so uh, so much farther behind. Um, mm. Now, I'm joking, of course, but so I, I discovered your ministry, uh, Real Apologetics, when a friend of mine who has appeared on my a recent uh, past episode of my show recommended your podcast, The Provocative Microphone of the Christian Religion. Uh, could you tell me what the story is behind Real Apologetics and, and its perhaps provocative name? What is it that led you to start it and what's it, its mission? Yeah, I, I get questions like this a lot, and uh, there's there's a couple documents on the website on the about section that uh, answers it a little, probably a little more clear than I'm gonna try to describe here. Um, but I'm not in saying real apologetics. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be elitist or anything like that. I mean, I'm right now I'm just a seminary student, and um, uh, but the whole creation of it uh, comes out of a couple different things, um, c- kind of two things. Uh, the first is a realization uh, of the the age that we're in, the information age that we're in, and how it is hard to sort through material. Now, of course, some of you are like, well, what, "What are you talking about? We got Google, we got all these other different things." Well, yeah, we can we can find things, but in terms of just having a place and having uh, you know, like the Real Apologetics recommended reading and so forth, having somewhere that's consistent material. That is uh, always from a, a perspective, you know, you kind of know what you're getting and having pretty, you know, pretty decent quality stuff. Um, that that isn't uh, that that isn't really common. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different apologetics ministries and there's a lot of bad ones. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good ones. You know, Greg Kokel's ministry, James White's ministry. I think of other apologists like Douglas Grutheis. Great guys. I mean, the the real deal. And um, uh, and uh, you know, there's still a shortage. I mean, these guys are busy, and they have uh, plenty of things to do, and books to write, and debates to do. And so, I I did think there was a need um, for something to uh, kind of cut through. 
so much fog uh, because not all apologetics ministries uh, are of the same value. I mean, it's just there's just a lot of, of bad ones that are actually doing more harm than good, I think. And so, um, so that's that's one thing. The second thing is just a realization um, and a conviction that uh, our theology really determines how we do apologetics, how we defend the faith. And uh, that is manifested primarily uh, in three different ways, and I list these on the website. And the first is just having a reformed soteriology, you know, believing the truth of the scripture, uh, of God's sovereignty and the way he gives justice and grace as he pleases, just completely God-centered. That, that, that core foundation, what it means to be saved. I mean, because that's what we want to see, right? Is people to be saved. And yeah. if we don't have the right understanding of the, the sinfulness of man and the wonderfulness and the, the freedom of God's grace, uh, our apologetics is just going to be really messed up. And the second thing is, uh, dealing with hermeneutics, how we approach scripture. And, uh, so real apologetics is, is distinctively uh, kind of covenantal, loosely covenantal, um, in contrasting with uh, dispensational hermeneutics, which I think is uh, it's it's not it's not a really you know horrible, appalling thing, uh, but I think dispensationalism um, really is is, a, is is an obstacle. It really doesn't help, uh, and so that's that's important. And then th- thirdly is that we're presuppositionalist, uh, biblical essentially, uh, in our apologetic method. We're not evidentialist, and so uh, you know we could. We could talk about that a lot. So that's that's kind of um, you know about real apologetics. Now the provocative microphone. I originally wanted that to be the, kind of the heart of the ministry, hmm. uh, but it ended up being um, less often and uh, less intense than I anticipated. Although it's I still do it. I love it, and people find it useful. Um, the blog is is a bit more central, but um, yeah, it, it's the provocative microphone. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's uh, in terms of the name. I mean, you know, you could you could pick a lot of different names, but uh, I just want it to be a place where it's it's good theology, it's useful, but it's not stale. Mm. And uh, that is something that really um, I think uh, people appreciate, and it's and it's just useful. Yeah, that's good. Now you, you mentioned James White. Uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned him because, uh, last week I had the opportunity to interview him. Um, beyond real apologetics, you also contribute to his blog, the Alpha and Omega Ministries blog. And I've heard your name mentioned once or twice on the dividing line as well. So I'm curious, how is it that you got involved over there at Alpha and Omega Ministries? Well, uh, back in 2003, uh, after I did this mission trip in, uh, Mexico, uh, I was introduced to, uh, Reformed theology and, I uh, read some of uh, different books, and I read James White's book, The Potter's Freedom, and that really just just drove it home for me. And uh, listened to his his podcast, or yeah, his his webcast, uh, The Dividing Line, and just really uh, appreciated his ministry and really appreciated his debates. You know, I didn't I didn't have to wonder anymore about what a, a Roman Catholic scholar or or Mormon scholar would say if I asked him these questions. I can I can I can know because. Here's two people sitting in the same room asking themselves, asking each other questions. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, debates is, uh, you know, really, uh, re- I found really helpful. And that's something that obviously had a big influence in my ministry. Uh, I'll be doing a couple debates in Las Vegas next month and then uh, two more, uh, Lord willing, in the, in the summer. And um, so after that, I, I met him at a conference in uh, uh, 2004 in Omaha 
and then uh, started, you know, going into his chat channel and just being a regular there and, and getting familiar with his ministry and so forth. And then I had the wonderful opportunity of going on a cruise uh, after the Bart Ehrman debate. Um, and uh, at that point, I started dating uh, his daughter, Summer, and that that really uh, gave me an opportunity to get to know, uh, you know, James and, and Rich. I went down to uh, Phoenix and and kind of saw their their operation there, and that was uh, really really fun and, and helpful. And um, uh, I just, you know, for me, it just really affirmed that this uh, this apologist, you know, who who did all these things, is really is the real deal, you know, <laughs> as a as a husband and a and a father, uh, just a just a a person who is. Um, is worthy of setting an example, and uh, so that was that was good. And then it was actually at that point, and talking with James, um, I think it was over pizza. I think it was <laughs> over pepperoni pizza. If I remember, I he probably wouldn't be caught uh, eating that today. <laughs> um, I I was uh, I was just talking with him, and that's when I told him I, I was thinking about launching a website uh, called Real Apologetics, and um, a month later, that's that's what happened, and uh, so you know, I just did uh, the thing there, and and uh, as I was studying in seminary, and uh, you know, wrote to the blog and different things like that, and and then I was asked uh, to contribute to cross post to the the Alpha and Omega Ministries blog, which is where I am now, and you know, it's 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 a really wonderful uh, opportunity, but. And it's, it's humbling. I mean, there's there's a lot of people reading, and uh, you know, it really shows um, the uh, and just how much I need to learn in communication. Because wow, it is it is easy to be misunderstood, even in writing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's uh, but but it's it's been going well, and so that's that's kind of what what's happened there. Yeah. Well, one of the topics that you've spent a bit of time covering um, on your podcast is the issue we're going to be d- talking about today, this, the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, about a year ago, you gave a lecture at Dort College entitled Calvin, and then I don't know how to pro- pronounce his name. Is it Bav- Bavink? Uh, I think it's, yeah, uh, Herman Bavink. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and a 21st century view of inerrancy. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that lecture and what it was about? Uh, sure. Well, <clears throat> it began in, in college when... Um, I don't know, it was just kind of strange that there was this attitude uh, that inerrancy was not a, a part of Reformed theology. It was not a belief that belonged to Reformed theology. And uh, it kind of bothered me for a while. And uh, especially after reading um, you know, various books on the subject and, and seeing how uh, this this attitude that inerrancy is this you know post-Reformation scholastic in, invention or this invention of enlightenment thought, uh, and how all that is just just uh, nonsense. And uh, there was a conference, and I had an opportunity to submit a paper, and I didn't. I got accepted, and so what I what I basically argued is that uh, John Calvin and Herman Bavinck, um their views of Scripture really aren't a lot different than what we would find in the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy that we have today. Hmm. And a lot of people, you know, saw that as anachronistic, just how inerrancy is this, uh, you know, an invention of the last hundred years, and how um, th- th- that just you can't you can't do something like that. But I mean, obviously, there's there's development in theology and uh, things like that. But the essence of inerrancy is just the truthfulness of Scripture. And when we when we really consider that, uh, that goes back a long ways. 
And uh, so I just uh, addressed some of those issues and um, argued that uh, that really Bobbick and Calvin kind of had the same view, and that's uh, the same view that we have today is is conservative, um, you know, reform Christians. So. Yeah. Well, I definitely recommend that my listeners check that out. It's available at realapologetics.org if they go to the scholarship section. So, um, now the question I have for you is, you know, you spent time obviously putting that lecture together. Um, you, uh, list inerrancy as one of real apologetics areas of expertise. You've devoted a few episodes to it. <clears throat> the question I have is, does that, does this really matter so much that, to, to justify all that time spent? Why, why does it matter whether we believe the Bible is just generally reliable, um, or maybe slightly more than that, being infallible in matters of faith and practice, or altogether factually inerrant? Does, does it really matter and why? Well, I mean, we're, if we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture, again, we're, we're just talking about its truthfulness, and so obviously that is that's huge. Uh, you know, the, the Scripture is the pillar and foundation of our faith, and uh, if it's not true, or if there's reason to think, you know, entire chunks of it are just just wrong or or inaccurate, uh, you know, it's it's just it really skews our understanding of what we're reading. Hmm. It's like, uh, what what are we reading? Is this really God's word? And if it is, um, is it? You know, how, how do we know it's truthful? Now, you know, traditional orthodoxy and you know Christianity, and, and, a, and a person like me and you would just say, okay, uh, God, uh, you know, is speaking through His Word, and God is truthful. So anything that's in the Bible is truth, and uh, that's that's a fair assessment. Uh, but when you start cutting it up uh, in this attempt to, you know, whatever, accommodate to uh, you know, modern liberalism or scientific theories or just, uh, you know, modern standards of precision or whatever, uh, you're, ju- you're just failing to understand what scripture is, is that there's no indication, uh, and there's no reason really anywhere to think that, uh, only parts of scripture or only certain aspects of what is being said or is being taught are true. Uh, and so we affirm, you know, total inerrancy that um, all of Scripture in what it teaches and asserts is truthful. So it, it matters because, I mean, that that's the heart of our faith. If we can't trust the Bible uh, because some of it might not be true, well, wh- where do we stop with that? Eventually, uh, we're going to be on the throne and, you know, basically declaring what is and what isn't and what's true and what's not. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Well, with that in mind, you know, you sort of summarized what it is that we're saying when we say the Bible is inerrant. You're saying that it's uh, truthful and everything that it that it affirms. But but I think it's worthwhile also to point out what what it is that we're not saying because I think there's some misunderstandings. Uh, when when you and I say the Bible is inerrant, are we saying that <clears throat> the modern Bibles which we hold in our hands today are completely without error? And if we're not, does this cast doubt on its reliability? Well, that's a good question. Um, and it's something I think uh, a lot of Christians struggle with or they haven't, they just haven't asked because, um, often discussions on the subject don't get that far. It's just kind of like, well, you know, the Bible is true and that's what we believe. And, you know, everybody's holding different translations when they're saying that. And, you know, uh, but, you know, when you get in a situation with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, it's like, oh, okay, their Bibles are false or something like that. Um, well, I want to, uh, read a, just a chunk of the Chicago statement. This is Article 10. And, uh, it says, uh, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of scripture. 
which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. So I think that uh, really summarizes it. And, um, you know, again, uh, this is something that I think uh, if, if you've never heard it before, it, it might shock you because <laughs> it, what it's saying is that um, not all translations have equal value. Yeah. Not all manuscripts or, or, or editions have equal value. Everything uh, that we have, the Bibles we have today, are without error. They're inerrant. They're the Word of God to the extent that they reflect the original. And so right. that's why it's so important to have a good translation, to have um, a, a good, uh, you know, critical Greek uh, New Testament. So we have all the entire, you know, uh, manuscript tradition where the autographic text is contained, you know. And so, um, I think, uh, that's, that's one thing. I mean, we could, we could talk about what else inerrancy isn't. Um, but I think we'll, I think we'll get into that as we, as we discuss more. Yeah. I just, I, I guess the, the thing that I'd like to reassure my listeners, at least, uh, those of them that may struggle with this issue is that, um, we are acknowledging the reality of things like scribal errors and stuff like that. Um, but, but, it seems to me, based on, well, for example, some of the debates that James White has done, um, that we do really have a very, very reliable um, uh, transmission history, you know, of the of of the the mm-hmm. originals. And so, while there may be a, a copyist error here or there, I don't see there being any real reason to cast doubt on the entirety of Scripture or even much of it. I mean, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I think a principle that's really important to keep in mind is the tenacity of, of, of scripture, as, as Alan would put it, is that, uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to talk about textual criticism and those types of errors, of scribal errors or copyist errors, uh, we affirm uh, the tenacity of scripture, which means, um, you know, textual criticism is like putting together a hundred piece puzzle with 110 pieces. Mm. We have the original text within the manuscript tradition. Uh, now, what that text is requires us to make some decisions and to study more. And for the vast majority, I think, you know, we, we kind of got a hold of what is, you know, probably in the original and so forth. And so and that's really the question. It's not a, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, it's, it's been so corrupted we, that we just can't know what Jesus said or things like that, you know, from critics like Airmen and so forth. So yeah, I, th- I think that is a, a fair assessment, as you as you said. Okay. Well, let's talk about another thing that inerrancy isn't. Uh, you you mentioned this in in one of your podcasts where you responded to a listener who wrote in. D- does inerrancy mean that everything written in the Bible was intended to be taken in a wooden literal way, or or, or does it instead allow for things like idioms and figures of speech? Uh, and then also kind of related to this, does it mean that the Bible is always very precise, such as when listing numbers of soldiers and things like that, or does it allow for rounding and approximations, stuff like that? Um, well, inerrancy uh, is, is, does not mean wooden literalism uh, applied all throughout Scripture. It, it, it's never meant that. Um, and uh, it certainly does allow for idioms, idioms and, and figures of speech. I, I don't know how it, it couldn't, but um, um, let me just read this section because, I mean, and, and I don't mean to, to, to cop out of answering it, but it's just I, I can't put it in a better way than the Chicago Statement, but this is Article 13. It says, we deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. Hmm. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision. 
irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole in round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. And so what's interesting to me, and, and I'll just be straightforward about this, this whole thing, is the most frustrating part of, of doing apologetics in, in, in this whole issue of inerrancy is that 95 to 99% of the critics or people who have questions on this subject have never read the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Hmm. They've never even read the book Inerrancy by the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. And that was the hardest thing about putting all this, this essay together is you're dealing with so many ignorant people. Mm. And, uh, of course, that happens all over in Christian apologetics. But on this issue, it's particularly uh, striking just how many people uh, look down upon the word inerrancy or the whole idea, uh, you know, as if they even understand what's being said. You know, because uh, often, you know, if you say inerrancy, a lot of people in your, your audience, your listening audience, are thinking, oh, you mean wooden literalism and all yeah. the numbers are precise and all these things. No, no, no. It's never meant that. It doesn't say that uh, in our in our documents and so forth. So uh, I think that's that's clear enough. I mean, what, what largely determines, um, you know, what is being said is is, you know, authorial intent. Um, you know, if if a person says in Scripture, you know, there, there was 5000 people. Uh, you know, on the hill, like it, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or something. Well, clearly that, that is a, that is a number, that's a round number. Uh, <laughs> it's an estimate. There, there could have been 5,127 people. Now, sure. you know, it's, you know, what's really interesting, uh, Chris, is that in, in just saying that to different people, I've gotten, gotten all kinds of different responses. That some people have said, you, you are, you are wrong. That, that is absolutely, <laughs> you have undermined the inspiration of scripture. Hmm. There exactly was five thousand people on that on that day or whatever, and I'm just thinking, uh, yeah, what happened to you know the purpose of the writing? Sure. What happened to the original intent? Because um, that, that that just destroys hermeneutics. And yeah. It's like how do we understand what any of this means? So, yeah. I guess God only owns the cattle on exactly one thousand hills then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's one more. Then, does, does inerrancy mean that the words of scripture were directly dictated to its authors? I mean, were, were they just writing down what they were told, kind of verbatim? Well, uh, you know, there's many different uh, modes uh, of how scripture was written uh, through human persons. Um, you know, a lot of scripture was written. Uh, it was it was given to people through visions and dreams. Mm. You know, they were laying laying on a bed, uh, just breathing softly, chilling out. And uh, you know, other times prophets and people were more conscious, like they were writing a letter, like Paul. You know, he's just sitting at a desk or whatever, uh, you know, writing away on a piece of paper. And you know, things like the apocalypse and uh, you know John and different visions and being taken up. There are all different kinds of modes of um, the way God has given Scripture and the way God speaks uh, and has spoken through people uh, in in the period of inscripturation. And so, uh, I you know, it's 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 a it's a question of depending. Well, what, what which part of Scripture uh, mm-hmm. do you mean, and what do you mean by dictated? So, yeah, but but take for example Paul's letters. We're not saying that Paul was 
told what to write down. So, so, and without knowing precisely the answer to this question, in in what way does does the Holy Spirit work with Paul to write a letter without actually directly dictating to dictating it to him? I mean, how how does how do proponents of inerrancy typically answer that question? Well, I mean, that, that it's a mystery largely. I mean, mm. all that Scripture really says is that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm. How they were carried along is another matter. Sure. And that depends. And we don't, we don't know, you know, I- exactly how that worked. I mean, uh, the, the best work on it that I can recommend, uh, would be Abraham Kuyper's work on the Holy Spirit. He's got a whole section on, on this subject and how scripture was written. And it's, it's really, really good. And he goes through that. And just, just, you know, you gotta keep a balance in saying, okay, God didn't overtake, you know, like Paul writing a letter so much that it wasn't Paul writing, you know, it, his his style and vocabulary was overcome. No, it's that's not it at all. Uh, you know, they're just not machines. Uh, so what we affirm is then is what's called an organic mode of inspiration or organic inspiration, where it's this um, uh, organic hole between the work of the spirit and the minds of the people who wrote it. But yeah, there there are different uh, levels, you know, like like Moses, for instance, in, in in Genesis. I mean, we think Moses wrote Genesis. We don't know exactly. Uh, we can assume so, but, um, you know, we have different clues, uh, that maybe this was through a vision when he wrote it. Um, because when he writes in Genesis, um, he says there was a garden planted east in Eden. Well, east of what? I mean, if there's one landmass, mm. I mean, I guess that would kind of make sense, but a lot of people interpret it as, well, east of where Moses was standing as he was watching God create hmm. as a vision, in, in a vision. Now, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, if Moses, or excuse me, if Genesis was, uh, Genesis 1 was written as a polemic, which is uh, partly my conviction, um, Moses was very conscious in the things he included in this writing to refute uh, a lot of the mythologies and uh, pagan creation stories. And so there you have, you know, this, this other part. So, yeah, we don't, we don't know exactly. We can just say they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and that, um, you know, the end product is the Word of God, but it's, it's also, um, a product of human effort too. Yeah, I like the way you put that. That's that's really the thing I want to get across is that we're dealing with not just the writings of God, but the writings of men and their style and their, you know, spelling errors and stuff like that. All those kind of things shine through. So, mm-hmm. well, so with all that in mind, with, with this kind of idea of what inerrancy is and what it isn't, some critics of the doctrine of inerrancy are going to say that it's not something that Scripture even claims of itself. I know that a friend of mine actually has said this to me. Before we look at some of their challenges to our position, can you sort of give us a brief positive case that the Bible does in fact claim of itself that it is inerrant in the way that we've said it is? Yeah, I mean, uh, Scripture talks of itself as being... Um you know the word of god i mean the, the most explicit text is going to be second timothy 316 mm. all scripture is breathed out by god and uh, that word there is you know theopneustos uh, and we'll probably talk about that later but i mean there's there's a lot of internal uh testimony about the truthfulness of scripture i mean uh, the psalms say you know it's purified seven times uh that's uh, psalm 12 uh, every word of the Lord proves true. That's Proverbs 30. Um, you know, there's there's all different kinds of things. Every time, you know, Jesus quotes Scripture, he quotes it as Scripture. This is the word of God. You know, this is authoritative. So, you know, the whole Old Testament is considered God's word and so forth. Um, 
so I mean, we could go through a lot of different e- examples and, uh, you know, everything that's, that's the internal testimony, like Acts 24, you know, Paul says that he worships God, believing everything laid down by the law or written in the prophets. And, you know, Romans 15, 4, Paul says, whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And, uh, so, you know, and there's, a lot of details, a lot of historical details. You know, David ate bread in the presence of, uh, you know, Jonah was in a whale, the men of Nineveh, you know, that there are a lot of different historical uh, details referenced uh, in the New Testament. And so there's no reason to think that uh, there's there's any, you know, inaccuracy in terms of things from history to geography to teaching. And so... Uh, but really, I mean, as far as a case that the Bible is inerrant, um, you know, just by knowing what Scripture is, what it claims to be, what it testifies itself to be, you know that it doesn't contain error because God doesn't. So, in principle, uh, that's how we know God uh, is inerrant. Is it Um I think. Uh, uh, in, in in preparing, you sent me a, a couple questions from somebody who had sent some things to you uh, about Second Timothy three sixteen. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna wait for that, and we'll we'll get to that part. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I understand. Um, and 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 there, there was a little bit of a, a connection burp again. So I'm, basically, what you're saying, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is that the the biblical case that we're making is that the that the Bible calls itself the Word of God, and if God can't err, then Scripture can't err. Does that sound like a Right, and there are you know a lot of internal details that affirm that you know in calling scripture true and saying that there's no way you know scripture can't be broken, uh, Jesus said in I think John ten, and so forth. So, well, now I'm curious in, in your lecture, um, you you give some pretty compelling evidence that at least as far back as Calvin, uh, the reformers believed in inerrancy. But what about uh, further back in time than that? Um, to bolster the biblical case you've made, can you give us a brief historical case, maybe? Well, not without reviewing a bunch of material and taking up about four hours of your time, but, uh, uh, you know, there's an entire book dedicated to making that, that historical case, and it's called Inerrancy in the Church, uh, edited by John Hanna. And the book is actually an official publication of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. And, uh, period in every, uh, major Christian figure from the second century to when the council took place in 1978, you know, from Calvin to, you know, uh, Edwards to John Owen and all these different people and from the early church fathers and so forth. And they uh, look at through these essays that, that they're all affirming kind of the same thing, uh, scriptural inerrancy. And so I would I would definitely check that out. And uh, so that book is probably the most valuable in answering that question, I'd also check out uh, Bavink's uh, Prolegomena and his uh, Reformed Dogmatics as well. So, I mean, the short story is Christians have always recognized the truthfulness of Scripture. It's authoritative and truthful and useful because it's God's Word. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure that I include links to that uh, those resources in my show notes. And and what I'd like to do now is, is look at a couple of the positions that are held by some as alternatives to inerrancy. Um, you know, and I, I'm a fan of Wayne Grudem, so what I want to do is look at one position that, that Wayne Grudem summarizes in his systematic theology. Um, he summarizes, it at, summarizes this position as, the Bible is only authoritative for, quote, faith and practice. 
So here's what he writes about this position. He says it would allow for the possibility of false statements in scripture, for example, in other areas, such as in minor historical details or scientific facts. Um, he would say that, so although the term infallible historically meant the same thing as inerrant, or at least that's my understanding, this position is often what is referred to today by the term infallible, namely that um, it's it's infallible when it comes to faith and practice. But when it comes to sort of other details, it could be wrong. W- what do you make of this position? Do you think that it does justice to what the Bible claims of itself? Well, uh, first of all, Grudem's work on the subject is uh, one of the best, and, and I recommend that. And he has uh, he's also written a really good article called uh, Scripture is Self-Attestation and the Problem of Formulating a Doctrine of Scripture uh, in the book Scripture and Truth. Uh, that's uh, you know on the recommended reading page on, on my website. Second of all, you're right in asserting that infallibility and inerrancy uh, are generally the same. Now, it's possible to make distinctions between the two, and uh, some are somewhat useful, but others aren't. Uh, scholars you know, disagree over this. Some would say that inerrancy is the same thing as infallibility, but with this innovation, mainly from Warfield's work, of the, uh, the, that inerrancy only applies to the original autographs. Uh, others would say infallibility means that the Bible cannot make a mistake, while inerrancy says the Bible does not make a mistake. Hmm. Now, it, it's that kind of distinction that... I, I guess I don't find it to be terribly useful. I mean, if the Bible can't make a mistake, uh, then it, it doesn't, right? right? I mean, it's there. So, uh, but in answering that, that leads us to get more specific about what we mean by Bible. And so we point to the original work of Scripture, the autographs. And so I guess in, in that sense, uh, that's, that's kind of helpful. Um, Grudem is right to say uh, that it isn't enough to just say Scripture is only authoritative and inerrant on matters relating to faith and practice. Uh, that's a false belief generally known as limited inerrancy, which means the Bible only makes true assertions on issues relating to the church, like uh, theology, uh, ethics, religion, and, and stuff like that. Hmm. So issues like history and geography and other factual areas, that's a different story. The Bible could be wrong. Now, the reason we reject that, that idea of limited inerrancy, is because it just it isn't taught in Scripture. You know, like I mentioned, Paul in Romans 15.4 says that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And uh, Grudem provides a list of other historical details and how there's uh, there's just no way we can believe that these are an error and hold to the belief that this is still the Word of God. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, one other position, you know, you you you've you mentioned a couple times this friend that uh, that I that I mentioned in the questions I sent you. Yeah, he, he's actually appeared on my show before to talk about something different. But um he he emailed me when I announced that I'd be interviewing you on this topic. And his position is I think somewhat similar to Grudem's, and so there may be a certain extent to which your your comments there um uh, apply here. Uh but I think it's also slightly different. He 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 wrote me saying that uh saying this, saying that scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God all by itself doesn't tell us about the nature of that inspiration and certainly not about the doctrine of inerrancy. He went on to say, perhaps what are inspired are the ideas, that is the, the message, but not the medium. Perhaps the teaching of every part of scripture is inspired and therefore true, but there are things in scripture that are incidental to that message, e.g. passing claims about scientific knowledge, literary conventions, imperfect memories of events, etc., uh, so that's what he wrote me. Now, whereas the former view we looked at would say that some things in the Bible, uh, some things that the Bible says are true where they concern faith and practice, but that other things it says are false, my friend's position is a little different, something more like the message or teaching of all of Scripture is true, but that some of the ancillary details surrounding that message, what he called the medium, 
may be false. Um, how would you respond to someone who advances a view like this? Uh, well, first of all, your friend is very wrong in saying that 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's calling Scripture God-breathed, tells us nothing about the nature of inspiration. Hmm. Uh, calling Scripture God-breathed is what is inspiration. That is, that's a very confused assertion uh, that he says because it fails to distinguish what we mean by the word inspiration. Hmm. The word inspiration is usually a way for Christians to summarize the doctrine of Scripture. So when Christians say the Bible is inspired, what they really mean is the Bible is the Word of God. It's a divine book and, and so forth. Now, that's okay, but there's something more fundamental that we're completely ignoring here. And that's the word inspired is used in Scripture to translate the word for God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. Right. I just put an article on uh, the Aoman blog a few days ago showing how the ESV, in this case, probably has a better translation uh, than the New American Standard and others in this text. Uh, the ESV says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, while the uh, New American Standard and other versions say the Bible is inspired by God. Yeah. Now, the reason uh, the New American Standard and, and others maintains this word uh, is because it tries to have a word-for-word -word equivalency when possible. You know, and so if there's one Greek word, we try to keep one English word. You know, if something like that. Hmm. Uh, so the best single English word uh, for theopneustos, uh, or this idea at least, if you could, if you could encapsulate it as much as you could in an English word, is inspired. It's also the more common word because the King James Version also uses the word, but in a different form. The King James Version says, all scripture is given by God, uh, excuse me, given by inspiration of God. Hmm. Now, the problem is, and any student of Greek knows this, is that to capture the idea of the original word here, is you're going to have to supply several English words. And saying, breathed out by God, is probably the best way of doing that. The NIV says God breathed, and that's that's also uh, decent. And so if we're going to talk about the details of inspiration, and if we're going to use this word, uh, do we mean the doctrine of Scripture, or do we mean what 2 Timothy 3.16 means when we read inspiration or inspired in our English translations? Because the two are not the same. And this is a, a really good case study of when theological concepts can uh, become confused with the actual exegesis of Scripture. And so I think we should begin with Scripture to help us define and establish our doctrines. And we give that, you know, we can give that doctrine any label we want. Uh, instead of saying that, you know, saying this idea that inspiration is this and then go back to Scripture and making it try to fit or saying it doesn't fit or, or whatever. So if we begin there, uh, we're thinking a bit differently than your friend. Hmm. Because saying that Scripture is God-breathed tells us what the Bible is in the most plain and explicit terms. Right. It is God speaking. It says, if God opened his mouth, exhaled air and words, and it went onto a page, and that's what we have. If you reject that, you reject the Bible as the Word of God. That's just the way it is. Hmm. And that's that's what Scripture is. Now, we obviously acknowledge that human minds are the means that God used to to speak in his written word. And that obviously asserts all kinds of things about the nature of Scripture. But first and foremost, above everything else, Scripture is the breathing out, the speaking of God. So that's number one. Now, your friend went on to say something about how uh, saying that Scripture is God-breathed certainly doesn't tell us about the doctrine of inerrancy. No, the the nature of that inspiration, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that, that that's false, because the fact that Scripture is God-breathed declares and establishes the very essence and fact of inerrancy. <laughs> if the Bible is God's Word, we already know things about the attributes of Scripture, because we know things about the nature and character of God. <laughs> God is authoritative. God is truthful. He cannot make mistakes. So we know that Scripture is authoritative. Scripture doesn't make mistakes, and it will be completely truthful. You know, and scripture will be beautiful and grand and, and so on and so forth because that's the way God is. And so this is, you know, something that has its origin in God. And again, we know all of these things because we know that scripture is principally God breathed. So to say that inerrancy has nothing to do with, uh, you know, Second Timothy 3.16 or the concept of being God breathed or inspired, if you will, is, is just a, a simple mistake. Now, uh, thirdly, your friend suggested that maybe what is inspired is the ideas, uh, the message, the the teaching that's in the Bible. Mm. Well, this is been this is essentially limited errancy. I mean, and this has been you know refuted over and over in, in various systematic theologies and so forth. And I think Grudem has done a good work, and, and so there's no sense reviewing that. But maybe what uh, he he means uh, is to say that Scripture is God's word and authoritative and inerrant on the higher level of concepts. Hmm. So, you know, Scripture is not inspired on the more fundamental level of words and sentences and letters and so forth. Well, this isn't true either. This is not the way Jesus and the scriptural authors treated Scripture itself. Jesus didn't have this view of limited inerrancy. And uh, if I could just provide a couple examples Please do, um, yeah. to, uh, to show what I'm talking about. Uh, in John chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, uh, Jesus makes an argument from the Old Testament, and, and it hinges on a single word, and a single form of that word, the plural form. If there was an error in the Old Testament that said God instead of gods in Psalm 82, or if that whole word wasn't there, Jesus wouldn't be making any sense. Hmm. His argument wouldn't work. His defense of his claim to be the Son of God would break down. And what's particularly important about this text is that in the same breath, Jesus says that this fact, that this one word is in Scripture, as he quotes it, upholds the authority and truthfulness of Scripture. He says, for the Scripture cannot be broken. Yeah. If the Scripture didn't contain that word, and that specific word in the form that Jesus quoted it, the Scripture would be broken. It, it would be fallible and errant. It would contain mistakes. So there's no question that Jesus believed the scripture is inspired and inerrant right down to the word level. Hmm. Now, the, the same is true for Matthew 22:32, where uh, Jesus' entire argument rests on the tense of a single verb, uh, I am, uh, you know, stressing the fact to the Pharisees that God wasn't just the God back in the days of the patriarchs, but God is today, right now, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the same thing in Paul's writings, uh, you know, Galatians 3.16. Uh, Paul's argument revolves around the difference in number between the words seed and seeds. Hmm. Uh, if scripture isn't errant on the most basic level of words and letters, then Paul just can't be trusted. Yeah. So the short story is um, scripture is completely errant, not just in religious matters or ethics or just in teaching or the general message, but in the very building blocks of the language. Now, of course, your friend has already, um, uh, he, he already has kind of believed that. I mean, 
think about it. If, if only certain teachings, and if only the message of Scripture is inspired and authoritative and inerrant, you still have a problem. Because that message is entirely dependent on the words and letters of the Bible. If I change yeah. the words, I change the teaching. If I change the text of verbs and the letters of words and structure of sentences, I'm going to change the message. So it just uh, it just doesn't get anywhere. And, and maybe you know, maybe I'm reading too much into what he's saying, but I think uh, you know, just saying, well, the general message is inspired. That's that's not what scripture teaches of itself. It just it, it doesn't. Yeah, no, I agree, and 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 I, I particularly find that last point that you made really powerful, which is that you, you can't separate the message from the words itself. If you change the words, the message changes. And if that's the case, you can't, you can't affirm the, the inerrancy of the message without in, uh, affirming the inerrancy of the words. So yeah, I agree. Well, if, if these positions aren't, um, uh, doing justice to what the Bible claims of itself, and, and if it does definitely appear to be claiming to be inerrant, uh, I want to look at some of the specific challenges um, that proponents of these alternative views level at the doctrine of inerrancy as you and I hold. And, and I'm going to continue with the, the friend's email that I, that I mentioned. Um, what he would say is that there are some clear examples of false beliefs held by the authors of Scripture, and, and not just held by them, but communicated by them in Scripture, but which God used to communicate a true message. So here's what he wrote me. He said, a very crude example that Jamin would probably accept is Deuteronomy 28:64, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Uh, what's the message? The message is that God told Israel he would scatter the people. But clearly the idea of the earth having ends, one at each extreme, is false. God used an imperfect framework of beliefs, which included beliefs that we think are false, to get the right idea across. Um, that's what he wrote me. Now, uh, of course, other critics of inerrancy would probably give additional examples, things like a flat earth, creatures which never existed, like dragons, and, and so forth. Now, what do you think about this? Did the authors of scripture communicate things which we know are false, such as a flat earth that has ends? Uh, well, no, Scripture does not communicate things we know are false. Uh, this And this obviously assumes a certain kind of truth. I mean, if I said the sun rose this morning, that's a true statement. The sun yes. rose this morning. Now, when I said that, do I mean to say that the earth is not revolving around the sun and that the earth isn't spinning on its axis and all those things? No. No. The meaning and type of truth that is being asserted in a written statement is largely determined by the authorial intent. That is the intention of the author. And we talked about this before with, with numbers. I can give you a number and assert something totally different in one sentence with another uh, than in another sentence with a number, just by changing nothing else but the number itself. Hmm. Uh, for example, if I said 5,000 people went to the concert, and if I said 5,232 people went to the concert, I'm using numbers in both sentences, but I'm using them differently. In the first case, I'm using it as a rough estimate. But in the second, I'm, I'm giving you a precise number. I'm telling you exactly how many people were at this concert. Right. And you know all of these things, even though I don't tell you, you know, the difference. The only thing I've changed is the number itself. And that allows enough information for the reader to pick up on what I'm trying to communicate. Now, the same is true uh, in sentences that don't involve numbers, like uh, from one end of the earth to the other, or the sun rose or whatever. We know what is being asserted, and we know that the author is not intending to be scientifically accurate because we say these kinds of things every day. So we should interpret it in a way that is foreign to the original authors. Now, this introduces us to a, you know, a complex subject of inerrancy and hermeneutics, and it's a very deep, uh, it can be very complex. Uh, but basically, these things are outlined in the Chicago Statement and in the publication 
uh, the book inerrancy, just like uh, most of the questions on the subject. The simple fact is you can't really separate the two. Uh, the various doctrines of Scripture, you know, depend on each other and help clarify each other. And that's the way good theology is. It's like a web. And that's why there are actually two Chicago statements. The first was on biblical inerrancy in 1978, and the second was on biblical hermeneutics in 1983. But it had about half or uh, less than half the amount of support as the first council, uh, just because it wasn't that good of a document. And uh, Norman Geisler and I think some others were really trying to push a particular view of Genesis and so forth, so mm. they didn't get as much support. But uh, that's not the subject, and I've been working on a statement on biblical hermeneutics for the last one, one and a half years, and and the draft it has been on my website for a long time, but uh, after doing more research on covenant theology and so forth, I, I decided to revise it for another year. Well, anyway, back to the subject. <laughs> uh, when it comes to the subject of the biblical authors and how their views might have collided with what God was trying to say through them, uh, it's, really, it's really pretty simple. First of all, Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inspired, not the person's physically wrote it. I think this is probably the greatest error uh, on the subject. Uh, you hear it all the time. Things like, God inspired the Apostle Paul, or the inspired authors of Scripture. That's not true. The only thing that's inspired or God-breathed is the text hmm. of Scripture itself, not the people who wrote it. And that's why you can have people who can make mistakes all day, uh, you know, like Paul or, or whatever. You can have sinful human beings, but still have them used to produce uh, an infallible work. And so, um, you know, the people who wrote Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter one twenty one, so that what they wrote is always true. Now, some people might use that word inspired to describe that concept, right? <laughs> but. I, really would encourage everyone to refrain from doing that. It's this kind of imprecision that causes all kinds of problems later down the road uh, when a person learns more about the Bible. Uh, scripture never really talks about a person being inspired writing Scripture. It says the authors of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit and that Scripture is God-breathed. That's, that's the teaching. And that's why when I teach or talk about the subject, whether in a church or at conferences or whatever, I avoid using the word inspired like the plague. Yeah. Uh, there's just there's just no sense in using it. Uh, scripture doesn't use it. Uh, it's it's more easier and clear just to say God breathed, and uh, inspired is just really loaded with so much baggage that uh, I just don't use it. So uh, when people make assertions and things like, well, the the biblical authors had false beliefs and false worldviews, and so that stuff crept into scripture. Well, they're half true. It's true that the people who physically wrote the scripture uh, were not infallible. Uh, they were errant. They could make, and they made mistakes all the time, just like any other human being. But it's the Holy Spirit's work in producing scripture that prevented those people from writing down things that weren't true hmm. and prevented them from writing mistakes. And I'd, again, refer uh, to Abraham Kuyper's work on the subject. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the biblical writers probably had a lot of crazy beliefs, but they were never taught... Uh, or excuse me, they never taught those beliefs as true in what they were writing. Now, if I remember correct, uh, correctly, this is what got uh, Dr. Peter Enns uh, kicked out, fired, pushed out, whatever, uh, from Westminster Seminary. Uh, Peter Enns basically asserted that, that the Apostle Paul uh, and other biblical writers bought into myths and lies of their particular time and culture and accidentally asserted them in, in Scripture and, and, as being true. 
Uh, G.K. Beale has written a wonderful work responding to that argument called uh, The Erosion uh, of Inerrancy. And so um, that's, is, that, is that generally clear? That's, 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 that's the distinction is that um, whatever false beliefs or worldviews or so forth um, biblical writers had, they were not taught uh, in Scripture um, as being true. So um, it is true that a person can communicate truths through a false framework, so to speak, or a bad framework. But that framework itself is not part of Scripture, um, and that's the distinction we would we would make. Yeah, and you know, I, I I agree with that. But I think that I mean, just to play the devil's advocate a little bit more, I, what, what my friend would would argue is that when the author there of Deuteronomy twenty eight sixty four said that the Lord will scatter, or well, quotes God as saying the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, that the, that the author there is in fact uh, communicating what he believes to be from one literal end of the earth to the literal other end of the earth. And so he would say that it's not just that this author believes that the earth has ends, but he's in fact communicating that false belief in this passage. Um, where, where, where is the devil's advocate wrong in that case? Well, I'm not sure about that because um, I guess I'd have to look into the, the origin of idioms because, I mean, the um, things like the circle of the earth or, you know, one end of the earth to the other or, Things like the sun rose, all those other statements, uh, they've been around for a really long time. And, um, they're not always originated because that's the way people thought they were. Hmm. Uh, and I guess I, I have to leave it at that. Otherwise, I'd have to look into this particular text and into the Hebrew and so forth and see if that's really, uh, what's, what's being asserted there. But, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's all I can say for that. Yeah, I understand. That's fine. Uh, you know, maybe I can, if you do find anything out about that, email me and maybe I'll, um, okay, yeah. But, but in the meantime, let, let's assume for a moment that the his, that the, that the history does suggest that this figure of speech originated without necessarily intending to, uh, or, or maybe it even did originate with the intention of communicating that the earth has ends, but that the author wasn't using it in this, in this way. Um, even if this is the case, and, and, and if we're justified in saying that there's a difference between, uh, statements of literal fact versus idiomatic, you know, figures of speech. He, he makes an important point, my, my friend does, in an email that he sent me, because he anticipated this. And what he said was, the problem is that now you have to choose a standard by which you will decide which things I take literally and which parts you won't. He said, I suspect your standard is our current knowledge of the world, but then you open the door to all sorts of things that I also accept. This is my friend speaking. Um, E.g., this should also instruct the way we read Genesis, right? Uh, because he he is not a, a young earth creationist as I am, and, and we're going to get to that in a minute too. But so so the question is, if we're going to affirm inerrancy and yet allow for figures of speech ranging from ones which suggest the earth is flat to ones which su- suggest God has wings, how do we distinguish between idioms and what are actual statements of fact? Well, everyone who opens up the Bible has to interpret it if the Bible is going to say anything. I mean, mm. you, you can't escape deciding what's going to be literal and what isn't. Whether you believe the Bible is inerrant or just a bunch of lies is irrelevant. You're still going to have to decide if you're going to read it, uh, you know, what parts are figurative and what parts are literal. This is mm. true for any written work. So the entire question has, you know, very little to do with inerrancy and is more of a subject about uh, hermeneutics in general. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, good books on the subject. Uh, you know, I, I provide at least four uh, volumes on the Real Apologetics recommended reading, reading and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't um, see that as terribly uh, relevant because that's that's more of a question of hermeneutics. I guess uh, there's a book called uh, Inerrancy and Hermeneutic, 
um, that I would get. I think it's edited by Harvey Kahn. And, uh, they get into all of that, the whole, the whole range of, uh, discussion, uh, of those kinds of things. So, it's a case by case basis. Mm. Um, you know, the rules of exegesis are the rules of exegesis. Now, if you want to debate what those are, we can do that, but now we're not talking about inerrancy yeah. anymore. Yeah, so. we have to do a whole other show for that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. that's good. All right, well, okay, so I want to look at one more objection, um, leveled at the, uh, leveled at the inerrancy of scripture, both by some professing Christians as well as atheists alike. Uh, it's often claimed, I hear this all the time and it drives me batty because I've looked into these, uh, or at least many of them. It, it's often claimed that there are numerous contradictions in the Bible. Um, there's a, something called Project Reason, which is a nonprofit foundation devoted to what it calls spreading scientific knowledge and secular values in society. And they link to a PDF that I'm going through in my podcast right now called Contradictions in the Bible, which alleges to map out you know, 440 or so contradictions in scripture. Um, you know, and of course you and I are familiar with some of the infamous examples, like was there one angel or two at the empty tomb, whether Jesus rode in on one donkey or two. Are any of these genuine contradictions, which, which skeptics, uh, use to object to the inerrancy of scripture, should, are, are they, are they, um, genuine contradictions such that we should reconsider the idea of inerrancy? Uh, no, they are not genuine uh, contradictions. If we let scripture speak on its own terms, uh, you know, if we impose our standards of accuracy or some standard uh, of accuracy or meaning foreign to the Bible on top of the Bible, we're going to get all kinds of problems. Now, that's not to say there are a lot of tricky, there are some tricky difficulties in various places, and uh, some of them we might not ever be able to fully understand in our lifetime. Uh, but a couple things at this point. Uh, first of all, as the Chicago Statement says in Article. Uh, what is it? Uh, I think 14, XIV, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> it says that we, we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. So the fact that our, our standpoint from 2,000 years later, um, you know, we're not able to iron out everything perfectly merely shows that we don't understand. Uh, not that the Bible is false. Hmm. And uh, another thing is, you know, the vast majority of alleged contradictions uh, can be explained just by paying attention to, to the context. Uh, yeah. These kinds of lists of contradictions that, you know, you mentioned are, are almost always guilty of reading verses out of context or just completely missing the point uh, of what the authors are trying to say. Yeah. Now, uh, I realize a lot of folks in the liberal sphere are opposed uh, to any kind of harmonization at all, uh, like between gospel accounts, for example. Uh, we could look at, for instance, the common uh, supposed contradiction between Matthew and Acts regarding the, the death of Judas. You know, Matthew 27, mm. 5 says that Judas hung himself, while Acts one eighteen says he fell headlong and burst open and his bowels gushed out. Now, many people say that, you know, it can't be one or the other. Either he fell or he hung himself. Well, if you're going to hang yourself, uh, you're probably going to do that alongside a cliff or on top of some high tree or somewhere that's a lot higher than, than how high you are. Yeah. And uh, obviously people who hang themselves outside are, you know, they're not going to stay there forever. Vultures are going to come and they're going to start eating you and all this stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's perfectly possible, if not probable, since we have two different accounts describing the same event, that Judas hung himself and at some point uh, fell. You know, either the, the rope broke or the branch broke or something slipped or, or something. And then his guts came out when that happened and he hit the ground. Now, some liberals absolutely hate that kind of explanation. Hmm. They just hate it. And I remember sitting in a New Testament class in college watching my professor, you know, turn his head in laughter 
in amazement when I gave him that explanation. Um, he, of course, didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, but what's interesting is that even if this was a book that didn't claim to be God's word, and even if we weren't Christians, we're going to try and give the benefit of the doubt to the documents and historians and persons who wrote them mm. um, in, in trying to figure them out. We're going we're to try to harmonize things, and we do that every day. And it's not because we're scared that our religion is going to be toast. or uh, It's because when people write things down like this and they tell a story in the way that Matthew and Luke did, there's no reason to think they're lying. Yeah. And so if they were probably weren't, if they weren't lying, you know, they were probably telling the truth. Uh, it's natural for us to harmonize. And so, you know, we have we have great books like Gleason Archer's Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, which is probably the best volume on the subject. Uh, but again, most contradictions are our creations uh, because we fail to realize uh, all kinds of things, whether the, the literary diversity of Scripture, authorial intent of different writings, uh, you know, and what exactly it means for Scripture to be errant. And so, um, you know, as before, we, you know, we read in the Chicago Statement, um, inerrancy isn't negated by all these different things, observational descriptions of nature and topical arrangement and different things uh, like that. So, Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's good. I, I definitely agree. Well, so we could spend all day talking about other objections probably that, that critics of inerrancy will make, but I'm not going to keep you forever. So. You know, I'll come back to this issue in future episodes on my own. But before I let you go, there is one more challenge I have for you. It's a sort of personal one, and since you've reviewed this beforehand, you might be chomping at the bit to address it. But it comes from somebody who doesn't appear to seem, uh, doesn't appear to think very fondly of you, as, as you'll well know. When I announced that you were going to appear on my show, uh, Fred Butler commented on the announcement and wrote, "Hopefully, you will challenge him as to his consistency with the first chapter of Genesis." In my interactions with the guy, his views of inerrancy tend to derail on the question of Genesis and historicity. And then Fred, Fred links to a post at his blog where he basically takes you to task for not seeing the old earth creation position as being a violation of inerrancy. Now, I'll admit, um, some of my listeners might not like this. You might not even like this, and that's okay. But I'll admit that as a young earther myself, I'm somewhat sympathetic to Fred's opinion of old earth creationism. And I, too, see its proponents as who affirm inerrancy as being somewhat inconsistent. But, but here's a question I have for you. Are you being inconsistent by being such a staunch defender of inerrancy while at the same time saying there simply is no basis upon which Fred can assert that old earth creationism or agnostic age creationism is at odds with the authority, inspiration, or inerrancy of scripture? I ask this especially given that Genesis chapters 5 and 11 give very specific ages at which each generation of fathers had their sons. In light of that, how can you defend an old earth position as being not at odds with inerrancy and yet be consistently a defender of inerrancy. Well, I don't, I don't defend an old view uh, of, of, of creation. I'm not an old creationist. I just, uh, uh, I'm, I allow for the possibility uh, that the earth is old. <laughs> that, that's a, I don't think I'm inconsistent at all for holding to inerrancy and allowing for the possibility that the earth is really old, and or for holding to inerrancy and saying what I did in that uh, quote you just provided. And I mean, that was that was part of the reason why the second Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics had about half the support as the uh, Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It's because some people thought that inerrancy entailed a certain uh, literal view of Genesis and thus a, a young earth perspective, while many others who wrote and signed the Chicago Statement on inerrancy did not. Hmm. So it, it's not like I'm the only person who holds the biblical inerrancy and allows for you know, the possibility that the earth is old and the universe is old. But I, uh, I think the subject is so charged because in the minds of many, when you say old earth, 
uh, people think uh, theistic evolution. Sure. You know, he's he's harmonizing Darwin's theory of Genesis. No, that that's that's just not true. Uh, and my ministry has criticized uh, theistic evolution since it was founded. And you know, I'm going to continue to challenge the members of Biologos to do public debates on the subjects, though I, I doubt it's in their interest to do that kind <laughs> of uh, public dialogue. Sure. So um, now as far as uh, Genesis and history and, and Fred Butler is concerned, I've always affirmed the historicity of Genesis. Always. Uh, it happened. God created the world in six days, and we have some... Specific words there, evening and morning. Adam and Eve are real historical persons, uh, and so on and so forth. I've affirmed the historicity of Genesis and critiqued it, you know, critiqued others at length who don't. And, uh, but I haven't affirmed, uh, the historicity of Genesis as Fred Butler understands it, which necessarily requires his young earth, uh, position. I don't know the age of the earth, and I don't think Genesis gives us absolutely everything we need to calculate with certainty of the age of the earth. And I honestly don't really care, have time in trying to figure out how old the earth is. And I think a person can do theology and, and Christian apologetics in an effective way without ever trying to figure out how old uh, the earth is. Now, I do think there is enough information to figure out the age of man uh, <laughs> who was created on day six after things stabilized. And I think it's wrong to say that human beings have been around for 50 or 100,000 years. I don't think man is, is that old. Uh, but calculating the age of the earth from an abs- you know, this absolute point of creation to today, uh, I don't think is as easy as, as people make it sound, especially when time doesn't travel at the same speed, uh, depending on where you are in the universe and what point of reference you're using, uh, and especially when time itself is being created. So, uh, but if I remember correctly, uh, Fred's objection from our exchanges uh, another months, a number of months ago initially began on inerrancy and the age of the earth, but but after he realized that you don't really have to be a young earth to hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, he kind of switched gears. Or or maybe it just became, you know, more developed in his thought. I mean, I do that all the time. You you learn and realize things as you're typing and sure. as you're, you know, thinking about them. Uh, but he switched over to the clarity of Scripture. And I think he said something about how, you know, what my problem is isn't really with inerrancy, but with the clarity of Scripture. <laughs> You know, he thinks that uh, anytime I say something about how Genesis is not exactly clear or easy to understand, he sees this as a kind of undermining of the clarity of Scripture. Well, I deny that, too, because uh, I don't think Genesis or any part of the Bible, for that matter, is trying to tell us how old the earth is. Uh, and so there's really nothing to make unclear <laughs> unless you're already assuming that one of the purposes of Genesis is to tell us how old the earth is. I mean, if, if Fred is consistent... Well, think about this. Um, say a person said, uh, the Bible isn't clear enough for us to know if the Apostle Paul ever had a wife. Now, that's, <laughs> that's, prob- that's probably true. Um, does this undermine the clarity of Scripture? No. No, not at all. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are unclear in Scripture. We don't know, you know what the thorn in the flesh is that he talks about. We don't know, you know why the order of the temptations are different in Matthew and, and Luke's account. I mean, we can speculate and offer solutions, but we just don't know. Uh, but none of that has anything to do with the clarity of Scripture. Sure. When we talk about the clarity of Scripture, we're saying that Scripture is clear in everything that God says in it. So if Fred or any anyone is going to make this objection to a person who says something you know, that isn't clear in Scripture, you're already assuming uh, what Scripture is trying to say, but that is exactly what's under dispute. Uh, what exactly is being said in Genesis 1 and so forth uh, does it undermine the clarity of Scripture to say that 
Genesis and its exact purposes and ways of communicating truth are not clear enough for us to say that the earth is young. Uh, I just don't see that as, uh, as an issue for the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I never suggested that we can't know what Genesis is saying. Um, you know, so that as if all interpretations are on the same level of credibility or exege- exegetical support. I never suggested that. I just asserted that there are other legitimate interpretations of Genesis besides the interpretation of Fred that should not be automatically dismissed because they have a lot more flexibility regarding the age of Earth, uh, the age of the Earth, and, and more flexibility than Fred is willing to grant. Mm. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have a, an axe to grind with Fred. In fact, I think there's, uh, there's plenty of evidence to think that he's maybe the reverse is true, and, that, and that's too bad because I never intended. Uh, or, you know, wanted to get into such a debate with Fred, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather be friends, you know. Sure. Uh, most apologists are looking for friends because they just don't, <laughs> they don't have many, you know. Uh, but, um, but man, you know, I really don't think it's a horrible thing that my ministry doesn't defend a particular age or age range of the earth. Mm. Now, I know Fred is really upset about that, and he sees things a lot differently, uh, but I just don't see why we should get all bent out of shape about that. Yeah, I hear you, and and you said something which, which actually I, I respect, and, and which I think makes you not inconsistent with your defense of inerrancy. And and, you, and if I understood you correctly, you said we do have reason to believe that we know how old man is, because what because I, re- I referenced Genesis five and eleven, which talks about the ages at which fathers had their sons. So if right. I understood, if I understood you correctly, would you say that we can? equate back approximately to when Adam was created, even if we don't know what that means as far as what the days of creation were? Oh, well, oh, even if we do know what the days of creation, I think, yeah, I think we can definitely calculate to when man was created uh, to a to a large degree of accuracy. I don't, I don't know when exactly, sometime between five and, you know, 10,000 years or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that seems pretty evident. But, um, but he could you have, know, had, like but- I said, well, let, let me just touch touch on that because the Greg, I'm a I'm a fan like you are of, of Greg Co- Greg Kokel, and um, I, I challenged him on this one time when I called his show, and I and because he he has expressed a view which which I don't I don't think does much justice to the text, but which I would agree okay. might be conceivable, which is that the days of creation are are periods of time communicated in the language of of days. But what I called to challenge him on was if that's true, it would at least seem based on these genealogies in Genesis five and and, and eleven that Adam was created approximately, like you said, between five and 10,000 years ago, but perhaps that was toward the end of this very long period of time called a day in Genesis. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't buy the day age theory at all. No, I, I think I don't it's, it doesn't make, when you have, when you have evening and morning, you know, yeah. at the end of every one, it's like, well, that's pretty consistent. And when you have plants being made before the sun, you know, if it's a thousand years, they're you know, <laughs> they might die, you know, uh, because there's not a lot of sunlight. Uh, unless, you know, I guess they could have the light from God if, if that's what's going on there. I don't know. But, uh, I, I don't, I don't think the day age theory stands at all. Well, I don't either, but, but that, and I'm sorry to keep pressing you on this and, and I, I won't, oh, that's fine. I, I won't take it too far on a rabbit trail, but, but that really kind of confuses me then because on one hand, it seems that you're willing to acknowledge that Adam was created between five and 10,000 years ago, which I would agree with. Um, yeah. But you're also denying that the days of creation could be day ages. Um, but if that's true, wouldn't that suggest that the universe was created about six days earlier than five to ten thousand years ago? Well, the thing is, um, the first day is the problem. Is uh, you have the creation of time, 
and you have a really what I would I would suspect a very very chaotic and interesting environment hmm. um, before light was made or even uh, maybe after light was made. But in that first time, but that, that's the problem is we talk about time, and it's every time we, we talk about time, we're assuming a point of reference, and we're assuming things about travel. And uh, when we, we'll, we'll put it this way: um, uh, if you were put into a rocket uh, and sent into space, going 170,000 miles a second relative to the Earth, and then you came back 10 years, when you returned, you would be 10 years old. But all the rest of us would be 20 years older. Yeah. Now, that's the way things are now. That's the way things are in, in the way things are going today. And think about how crazy things would be um, when time is being created, mm-hmm. when there are no points of reference. There is just uh, you know, cosmic chaos, and there's no point of reference by which to measure time. And even things like... Um, uh, the reference points that God gives us to measure time, like this, the moon and the stars and, and so forth, didn't exist yet. Now, we still have this reference to evening and morning, and I think that's, that's, you know, that's, that's very helpful in telling us it was probably you know, a, a rotation or something like that. Although that's, that's, that's tricky, too, because um, you know, what, what is a rotation if, if there's not sun being shined on the earth either way? You know, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky deal, but um, so yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we have enough knowledge about the nature of the creation of time in the first day, uh, to say, uh, we know we, we can, we can measure everything in this earth, um, and use our different methods, uh, of measurement to get back to that singular point, hmm. uh, when God said, let there be. And so it's, you know, I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to, you know, screw up the exegesis of Genesis. I just, um, I just really think we're really, really stretching um, the the text, especially if we, you know, what is the purpose of all of this? We haven't even talked about that. Um, and what is the nature of Genesis one? Uh, we're really putting a lot of stress on it to assert that you know everything is as static uh, as we think it is today. Uh, throughout the entire uh, creation account. Mm. So, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't buy that and they think I'm crazy because of that. I'm, you know, I'm I'm easily persuaded, uh, but you know, really, I, I just I don't know. I just I just I don't know the age of the Earth and I don't see what the big deal is. Well, I know what the big deal is. It's because in the 60s and 70s, you know, Morris and everybody else were creating all these different arguments to get rid of evolution, and they figured, all right, hey, let's let's create an argument for a young Earth. And that way, we can do away with the entire theory of evolution. We don't have to touch one bit of science or biology, because if we can just demonstrate somehow that the Earth is really, really young, then evolution isn't even possible. And so all the eggs were in this basket uh, for a number of decades. And, uh, you know, I was... Um, I, I met Ken Hovind. You know, I went to his conferences, and uh, I'm familiar with all, you know, a lot of Ken Ham's material. Um... Uh, but I just, the pro, that's what it really comes down to is when you get into these discussions is you see more of a, um, an assertion of the importance of the age of the earth instead of the exegesis of Genesis 1. Hmm. 
And that's what I'd love to talk about. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where we should go. And, uh, so, so anyway, I mean, that's, that's kind of a summary position. And, in my view of, of Genesis 1 is, you know, it's historical and these things, but, um, I think it's generally a, a polemic that it's written. The, the reason why we have the different elements in Genesis 1 is because, uh, it is written to refute different false mythologies and creation stories, uh, in the, in, in the context of, of when Moses wrote it. And so, uh, and I could, you know, point to some resources, but that is, that is the most convincing, uh, just kind of general purpose, uh, of the writing, other than, you know, the broad purpose of explaining where we all came from. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Which is really handy. <laughs> so, uh. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe you and I could talk about this offline sometime in the future. I'm, I'm not too worried about it because, because I think that, like I said, your, your statement about the genealogies to me really does show me that you're being consistent because, uh, I, I respected Greg Kokel's response when I called him. He basically said, I haven't found an intellectually satisfying answer to the genealogies that supports my old earth view. And I respected that because basically what he's saying is, uh, I, I don't know how to explain that passage. Um, which I think is more consistent with how some older creationists would do it, which is, well, you know, the genealogies aren't complete or whatever, but I think that's bogus. So anyway, so I do think you're, you're being consistent, even if you allow for an older view of, of Genesis 1. So I think that's good. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not that I, it's not that I even lean towards it, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know, and, uh, I'm open for persuasion, but, uh, I think Fred got a little too flustered to, to to write in a way that was more convincing for me. He was he kind of wanted to uh, establish I think the status quo a bit more. So so maybe you know there's some some better literature out there that can uh, that can demonstrate uh, you know why uh, inerrancy or clarity or why any real consistent exegesis of um, Genesis one requires young Earth. And I'm actually opening myself up to that in reading Creation and Change by my professor uh, Douglas Kelly. Uh, who's a, a big authority on the subject, who I, I think argues for that. So, you know, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll, I'll, you, you should, you should do an episode after you've found out where he comes from on that, because I'd, I'd be chomping at the bit right. to listen to that. Yeah. I know you don't want to defend a younger view on your podcast. That's okay. I'm, I'm just fascinated. Well, I, no, I'll, I'll share. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it. But. All right. No, that's good. All right. Well, you know, I'll keep you up for a long time. So I, I'm, I'm going to start to wrap up. Um, I appreciate you taking that tangent with me. Um, mm-hmm. So now what I want to do is is kind of conclude with uh, what I think are some of the biggest problems with denying inerrancy. And, and, I, and I like the list that Wayne Grudem gives in his systematic theology. Um, he lists four. He says, number one, uh, we, we're left with a serious moral problem because we're left asking, can we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters too? After all, if God is delivering true spiritual messages through false mundane ideas, are we justified in doing the same? Second, he says it leaves us wondering if we can really trust God in anything he says because how are we to distinguish between what he says that's trustworthy and what he says that's not? Thirdly, he says we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself, since it's our judgment to which the text is subjected when we're trying to distinguish between what the true message is and what the false ideas are. And then finally, he says we're forced to say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but also in some of the very doctrines that people are saying are true, despite the Bible not being inerrant. He says, because the Bible says it's God-breathed, as we've talked about, and that God can't lie, so to deny inerrancy would be to deny the Bible's doctrine of itself. Now, I list those four, and I find them very powerful. I, I, in a picture of your your workstation at your website, I see Grudem's systematic theology at your desk. At least I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. 
So, mm-hmm. so what do you think? Do you see these as being the logical consequences of denying inerrancy? And is there anything that you might want to add to the list? Oh man, I know. I I think that's he, Grudem nails it. I mean, I I really uh, I don't think I have much to add at all. Uh, I think he gives a great summary of the consequences. Um, you know, it's and it's so important. It is so important. Once you once you make that slip and say, you know, the Bible isn't inerrant, and, and you go down that path, and I've seen so many people do that. Friends in college, you know, you thought they had a strong faith, and when the questions come up, that's one of the first things to go, you know. In classes, different different things, textual criticism or uh, just the questions of synop- synoptic uh, harmonizing. And uh, without this grounding of what the Word of God is and just what inerrancy is and how it flows from that, uh, yeah, it's 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 a not a it's not a pretty picture, and uh, you know it it gives way to you know everything we're seeing today from um, whatever kind of branches of ungodliness in society. It's mm. it's all an abandonment because it's you either human beings live their lives uh, you know according to one standard of two. Either what we say or what God says. Yeah. And, uh, that's why inerrancy is so important, uh, is because when you start denying things like that, it's, there's nothing to keep you accountable. You are on your own and you get to define what is, what is truth. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think he gives a good summary. That's good. Well, so is there any sort of parting message that maybe you'd like to leave us with? I do this with all my guests. I like what many of them have to say, even if they feel a little put on the spot. But what would you most like to see us take away from this discussion that we've had? Well, the Bible is totally truthful. Uh, it is reliable. It is sufficient. And since it is both a human document and a divine document, we shouldn't be too quick to assume how exactly the Bible is truthful and is inerrant. And we must make an effort uh, to let Scripture speak on its own terms. So I, I think that's the best way of, 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 of summarizing, and that really uh, gets home to the to the heart of the matter. Fair enough. So where can my listeners go uh, to connect, to get connected with you with Real Apologetics and to start listening to the provocative microphone? Well, uh, my website is realapologetics.org, and uh, there's a button on there for podcast, and uh, that's that's about it. Uh, I don't do a podcast. Uh, terribly often, maybe twice a month uh, is what I kind of shoot for, um, and uh, it's it really depends on on what's going on. But uh, yeah, the blog is more active. You know, when I started the ministry, I thought it was all going to be about the radio. It was all going to be about the podcast, uh, and the blog would be kind of a side thing. Well, it, I guess Providence had it in mind; it'd be just the opposite. I guess the the blog is way more <laughs> active, and uh, the podcast is is a little bit. Um, Less. So, but it, yeah, that's, that's at realapologetics.org. Good. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. All right. Well, I hope that you enjoyed the interview as I did, and I hope that you'll stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, which will be a debate between a Trinitarian and a Oneness Pentecostal over the pre existence of the Son of God before his incarnation. Until then, 